What's up, everyone? All right. When I was 11 or 12, this story mattered a great deal to me, so I'm going to tell it to you. It's a story about a little girl. She was about six or seven years old, and she just figured out how to make toast. So she did. She made some toast. She put it in the toaster, and uh, then she waited, because making toast is tedious business. So she waited and waited, and pretty soon she noticed the reflection of herself in the toaster, right? It's a stainless steel toaster, right? So she notices the reflection, and she's like, that's a pretty great reflection I see in that toaster. And um, rightfully so. She just figured out how to make toast. Beautiful reflection. She goes, I'm going to give that reflection a kiss. So what she does, she leans in, and she gives her reflection in the toaster a kiss. And we all know what happens next, right? She burns her lips. So she runs upstairs. And she runs upstairs to her parents, and she says, I burned my lips on the toaster. They said, how? And she said, I saw my reflection. It was beautiful, and I wanted to give myself a kiss. And so I burned my lips. And they said, well, let that be a lesson to you, right? Uh, lest you think too highly of yourself, right? If we think too highly of ourselves, we get burned. Right? That's kind of the thing. And, uh, and when I was 11 or 12, this was a really important story in my life. And it was an important story in my life because this sort of was the story, the principle, um, by which I understood my relationship with God. That was it, right? It was this idea that I was loved and that I was beautiful, my reflection, lest I get too high and mighty or lest I get too full of myself or lest I stop putting God first, I might get burned, right? That was kind of the, 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 the guidepost that I gave myself. This story, it has stayed with me for 30 plus years at this point. Well, no, 20 something years. But anyway, it stayed with me for a little while, right? And what it did and what I think it's done to all of us, because I don't think I'm the only one that sort of would use a story like that as a guide, I think it creates a little bit of an inconsistent Christianity, right? A little bit of an anxiety-inducing Christianity, right? That God is so good, that God so loves the world, that God gives us Jesus, unless we get too high on ourselves and we get burned, right? Or that Jesus is, is, the God, is God incarnate. Jesus comes in peace. Jesus shows us love. And then we read Revelation literally, and then Jesus comes with a sword on a horse ready to kick some butt, right? There's some anxiety and inconsistencies in the way we think about in the way we think about Christianity, um, I love the fact that God loves the world, and yet if we're really going to do the math, about 75% of the world's going to go to hell. Um, so I don't understand you know, how God quite loves the world. There's this inconsistent, anxiety-inducing Christianity out there. Does anybody feel that at all? Does anybody feel that? Just me? No? You all can raise, if you feel it, you can raise, you can do something. Yeah, there we go. Okay. I think, I think, so. I, I was like, oh no, I don't need to preach this message. I'm the only one that feels this way. <laughs> um, no. Uh, so here's the thing. Here's what we do in the midst of this anxiety, right? I think what we do is we say, oh no, uh, there's, there's like sort of a middle line or a middle place. And this middle place is, is the place where I have to be uh, good enough, right? I have to be good. I'm loved, but I still have to be good enough because at the end of the day, Jesus dies for me. And I am good enough, and I have that saving grace, and it's amazing, unless I stop going to church regularly, unless I sin and don't care. Hmm? Unless I become one of the people that the Bible says I shouldn't become, unless I support one of the people that the Bible says I shouldn't support, unless I start seeing the Bible as, in, uh, stop seeing the Bible as infallible, unless, 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 there's all these caveats, we are so loved until we get a little too close to the toaster, and then we are burned Right? There's a sense in which that's the case. And so as Christians, as myself, I think what we try to do, whether we believe we're trying to do it or not, is we try to be good. There's a sense in which we're like, I want to be good. Let me be good so that I won't burn myself. Right? Now, I'm going to tell you something that you all do to me all the time, all of you. Um, <laughs> when you're not good, what you do is you apologize to me for it. <laughs> 
I don't know why, <laughs> but usually what y'all do is like we'll be talking and like you'll curse or we'll be talking and you're like, oh, I really think that person's cute and I want to hook up with them. And you're like, I'm really sorry. I'm not being good. <laughs> That's what y'all do to me. And I'm like, I don't think, I think that just kind of makes you human. <laughs> like, but it's weird that you think I have some sort of direct connection to God like that. Anyway, um, yeah, yeah, there's a sense in which whether we believe it or not, we say, oh, I'm, I'm not being good, right? And so what we do is we have these scales, and on these scales we equate, uh, we, we, we pay attention to our goodness and our badness. We make sure that we are so loved by God, but never too close that we're going to burn ourselves on the toaster, right? We just always want to make sure that, that we're doing just enough to make sure that we end up in the right spot at the end of the day. We're being good, right? And goodness takes on a lot of forms. In fact, goodness takes on a lot of destructive forms after a while, because all of a sudden we start uh, equating good with more morals and practices and platitudes. And so I have this friend, her name is Amber Cantorna. She wrote a great book called Unashamed. It's a coming out story for the LGBTQIA community. And um, on her book tour, she told me that a woman came up to her and said, hey, I came out to my family and I was physically assaulted. Now that's awful. It's terrible. And I, I know that that's not a, a, a unique story. And, and so she said, I was physically assaulted. I went to the doctor just to make sure I was okay. And when I came home, all of my stuff was in the driveway. All of it. My family had kicked me out. And it's heartbreaking. And what I'm going to say next doesn't condone this in any stretch or by any means, not at all. But what happens is when we try to be good, we start to take on practices that actually hurt other people. Because what her family was doing is they were saying, oh my gosh, in order for me to be good, in order for me not to be burned, what I need to do is I need to exclude this person because the Bible explicitly says not to, not to deal with people like this. And so this person's too far gone and there's nothing I can do about that, but I can still save myself from being burned. And so I'm going to push that person out of my life. Life. Do you see what happens when we try to be good? We create actions that actually hurt others. I was talking to somebody about how uh, American Christians love our current president. And this person was like, I don't get why Christians love our current president. And I said, you have to understand, for them, it's about being good. For them, we've made religion, we've made Christianity about nationalism, about a few platitudes that this current president actually supports. And so it doesn't matter if they lie and if they cheat and if they do all the things that they do. That doesn't matter. You see, they're being good by voting for them to actually vote the other way is being bad, lest we get burned by the toaster, right? They're afraid. And so the idea of being good allows them to vote for someone who might exclude others, right? This is what happens when we think about what it means to be good, right? That's what goodness looks like. How many people, raise your hand, come on, don't be afraid. How many people are like, you know what? I try to be good, consciously or unconsciously. Yeah, okay, exactly. Um, now here's the thing, I think at the end of the day, I think at the end of the day, the reason that we try this goodness and the reason that we adopt certain things and, and discredit other things and exclude some people and include other people is because at the end of the day, we don't believe we're inherently worthy. We believe that we do have to be good. You know where it comes from? It comes from this idea of original sin. Y'all know about original sin, right? You've been told that you're sinners. I've been told that I'm a sinner. Now, here's a funny thing. Like in our scriptures, outside of a few kind of confusing verses from Paul, there's nothing in our Bible that tells us we're original sinners. Nothing. In fact, that didn't become a popular idea until a few hundred years after Christianity started when a guy named Augustine was like, oh, by the way, um, Adam and Eve were predestined to eat that fruit, which means we're all born inherently bad, right? And we sort of took that. We liked it. We are like, hmm, okay. And then another guy came along and said, hey, not only are we inherently bad, but Calvin says we're totally depraved, like completely and utterly bad. And then another guy came along, Luther, who coincidentally started the last iteration of the 500 years of Christianity, and Luther said humanity is a pile of manure, 
That's what, that's, what, that's what Luther said. And then we, have, we get to America, and there's this giant revival. And how does this revival happen? It happens by a guy named Jonathan Edwards who preaches a message called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God about how we are all terrible people in need of saving. And so a bunch of people get really afraid, and revival happens because they're all scared to death that they're going to get burned. So all of a sudden we get this American Christianity that says at our core, the reason that we have to try to be good is because we're actually bad. We're actually sinners. We're actually originally sinners. We're depraved. We're manure. And that's the lie that we need to get rid of today. So here's what I'm going to tell you today in our Becoming series. This series, what we're doing, we're saying, hey, we're going to usher in the next 500 years of Christianity. And in order to usher in this next 500 years of Christianity, we've talked about how we could do that communally and theologically. What about personally? How do we become mature followers of Christ who can usher in the next 500 years? And who was here last week when I talked about blame? I said, quit blaming other people, right? Blame is just a matter of us transmitting our pain onto somebody else. I said, that's not going to help us. And what I'm going to tell us today is we're going to usher in the next 500 years personally. We're going to become mature followers of Jesus Christ when we quit trying to be good. Stop trying to be good. Being good is actually fundamentalism cloaked in grace. That's what it is. Quit trying to be good. So what do we do? Well, what do we do? Well, we've got to look at Scripture. And the truth of the matter is, if you've been going to this church for like two or three years, you've heard me say this a thousand and a half times. And I'm going to say it a thousand and a half more times, because I think the idea of goodness in the way that God sees it is so incredibly important. So I preach on this all the time. I wrote it in my book. Whenever I do like a podcast or an interview, I talk about it. But we need to define the way that God sees goodness. Y'all down to define the way that God sees goodness. And some of you are like, I'm just going to be reminded of something Jonathan preaches on all the time. And it's true. Because God sees goodness uh, in the Hebrew. I'm going to tell you something. You know that the Bible wasn't written in English. <laughs> Yo. Yo. Yeah, it was written in Hebrew. And in Hebrew, the word good means, who remembers this, means what? Okay, the word good means tov. Okay, that's the Hebrew word for good, tov. Mazel tov, right? That's what we say. Uh, and so what does good mean in the Hebrew? Well, in the Hebrew, God, uh, in Genesis chapter 1, God says that things are tov, things are good, six different times. Right? So from the beginning, God says, oh, I've created these things, including humanity. And it is tov. It is good. Right? That's what God says. Now, what does good mean? Good means not like a state of being or a positive action. Good actually means for its intended purpose. That's what it means in the Hebrew. For its intended purpose. So what God is saying is, I've created these things, and they are for their intended purpose. That's what they are. And so I love the stars one. Stars one's my favorite. God creates the stars and says they are good. And stars, they're amazing because they give light at night. And they help people to navigate. And they're also dying balls of gas that wreak havoc on the universe, right? But they're good. They're for their intended purpose. God says both those things. The fact that they bring light, the fact that they help people navigate, and the fact that they're dying balls of gas is all for its intended purpose. It's the way that I want it to work. Um, there's a beech tree. There's a beech tree in the front of my house growing up. Anybody else have a beech tree? They're terrible trees, y'all. Anyway, they, 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 uh, in the Northeast anyway, they're all sick and dying, which is really sad. And mine was dying in my front yard. And so whenever you climb it, you get like this chalky substance all over you because the bark is white. And my dad would always say like, I got to cut down that tree. That tree is gross and it's dying. And then in the same breath, my dad would say, it's also my favorite tree. 
And it was my dad's favorite tree because whenever my dad got home from work, me and my sisters would be climbing in that tree, right? And he would see us and it would be like this kind of cool moment when my dad got home from work, right? That's tov. That's goodness. That's for its intended purpose. You have this thing that is gross and dying and getting chalk all over your clothes, and yet it's the best thing in the world because it reminds you of love, right? Do we see how good is not a, an action that creates a positive interaction or a positive thing? Tov, tov is for its intended purpose, which means it's both good and, in some cases, that idea of bad, right? It's for its intended purpose. And so when I think about my dad, and I think about my dad's transition, my dad transitioned and became transgender in 2012. It was tough. It was for its intended purpose. It was really difficult. And in some ways, it still is kind of difficult. And at the same time, I've never seen such peace, right? So it's all for its intended purpose. It's good. And so what God is saying to us when God creates us is, no, you didn't start off bad. No, you don't have original sin. In fact, I've created you exactly for what you are and for who you are. And this is what you're intended to be, both the good and the bad. And so what God is saying is it's not about original sin. It's actually about original blessing. You are blessed. And I like to think of it as being imperfectly perfect, right? Because we still have sort of this, you know, the things that we're doing. We're still going to burn our lips on the toaster from time to time, right? And God says, yeah, I see you burning your lips on the toaster. It's tough. It's all good. It's for its intended purpose. This is always who I've made you to be. And I love you no matter what. There is no, uh, there's no uh, idea where you can get too close to the toaster, where I send you too far away, that you can never be redeemed again. All of you, the best parts of you and the worst parts of you are for their intended purpose. They are all good. That is the original blessing. That is tov. That's goodness. That's what we're looking at. So what does that mean in terms of Jesus? Well, Jesus, when we look at just trying to be good, right? Jesus doesn't become Jesus at all. Jesus is, doesn't matter about the life of Jesus. It doesn't matter about our WWJD bracelets. We don't really care what Jesus would do because at the end of the day, what we say is we say, well, Jesus is really just about sin management, right? Jesus is really just about sin. So if, as long as I believe in the death and resurrection, well, then everything's okay, right? As long as I, I, I snap my fingers, that transaction makes sense in my life, well, then I'm saved and I'm all right. No. When we think about it as original blessing, as all for its intended purpose, then we sort of get Jesus' life. And Jesus' life matters a ton, right? All of a sudden we see Jesus living out this idea of tov, this idea of for its intended purpose. All of a sudden we see Jesus saying things like, blessed are those who are poor. What? Yeah, and Jesus is going, it's all for its intended purpose. We can be in the midst of struggle, and we can also be blessed. It's not necessarily a, a, a positive interaction. It's more about the fact that we are who we are and we're simply loved by God regardless. There's nothing we could do in the good or the bad that takes that away. It's all tov. So when we look at the life of Christ, it makes sense. We see Jesus living it out according to its intended purpose. That means Jesus' death is according to its intended purpose. It's not about sin management or about a transaction. It's about looking at the life and saying, okay, this is the life of Jesus, and this is the life that, that I should start following, which means that this is my purpose as well. There's good news in that, because it means that we can admire our reflection in the toaster, and we're loved by God. And it means we can kiss our reflection in the toaster, and we're loved by God. It means we could take the toaster and hurl it across the room. And we're loved by God. <laughs> That's what Tov does. That's what God's goodness does. Now, whenever I tell people about this, there are some people who are like, this is amazing. And I'm like, why? And they're like, because if I quit being good, it means I can do whatever I want. And I'm like, technically, yes. 
Technically, you can, and technically, it's all for its intended purpose. But what we're basically doing is we're simply trading in one form of fundamentalism for another. Instead of saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be good, and I'm going to be good over here at the expense of others, where I exclude others, what we do is when we say, hey, uh, it's all about me, and it's all about my needs, and it's all about what makes me happy, and it's all about how I am number one. When we do that, we're just creating another form of fundamentalism that excludes people. Right? That's what we're doing. When God says it's all for its intended purpose, God's intended purpose for us is not to always be happy. God's intended purpose for us is not always to have our needs met. God's intended purpose for us is not uh, for us always to get the, the thing that we want or to have our way or whatever the case may be. There are some times when God's intended purpose is for us to be selfless instead of selfish and for God's intended purpose for us to look outward instead of inward at self. And so what we do is we say, well, this is great. I no longer have to be good, but I also need to make sure that I'm, I'm just being in God's intended purpose. And OK, I'm a little confused. What do we do? Where do we go? Well, this is where I want to take a look at Paul. And I want to take a look at Paul in Philippians. And this is what Paul says. He says this. Rejoice in the Lord always, and I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. And finally, brothers and sisters, whoever, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the peace of God will be with you. I used to think this was a little bit corny, um, because I used to have to sing this song, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Y'all want to do the round? Remember where you do, do a round? Yeah. Um, and here's the thing, though. Here's the thing. Like Paul's in chains when he writes this, right? Paul's in prison. Um, and I love this. Well, how can Paul be in prison and say these things? Rejoice in the Lord. How can Paul be in prison and say like, oh my gosh, um, not only, but, but just reflect on all the good things. Here's how he can do it. Uh, and I'm going to take a quick step back. There's this uh, sociologist, his name is Rick Hansen. Rick Hansen says that our brains, our brains absolutely love negativity. We love it. Negativity is like Velcro to our brains. Our brains react well to negativity. Our brains react well to anxiety. And so when we think about trying to be good, that's actually the default. That's where our brains want to go. Our brains want to weigh out whether we're good or bad. Our brains want to have some sort of consequence. It makes it easier for us to think, right? That's the truth. When I was a teacher, and I've said this a thousand times, my principal used to always say, remember, it takes nine positive interactions to forget about the one negative interaction. Right? That's how much our brains love this negativity, this anxiety, this idea that we got to be good or else. And then the same sociologist, Rick Hansen, says positive things, you know, the things that are for their intended purpose, they actually fall off our brains like an egg off of a Teflon pan. That's what he says. And he says, basically, he says, we have to legitimately and intentionally meditate on good things in our lives for at least 15 seconds for them to be imprinted on our brain lest they be gone. They'll go away. That's what he says. And so when someone says to you, hey, good job. And you say, hey, thanks. And then you walk away. You didn't believe that it was a good job. You didn't meditate on that for 15 seconds. And what I love about Paul and what Paul gives us through all his letters is Paul is intentionally thankful. Just always intentionally thankful. What Paul does is he's basically tricking his brain right, into understanding that it's the positive that actually makes the world go around. 
It's the goodness that actually makes the world go around. In fact, from Paul's letters, there's a Jewish practice of gratitude. And the Jewish practice of gratitude literally goes like this. You wake up in the morning, you go, hey, God, thank you that I'm awake. And then you go to the bathroom, you say, hey, God, thanks that I can go to the bathroom. And then you eat and you say, hey, thank God, thanks that I have food. And it's constant thanks. In fact, in the Jewish tradition, you say this a hundred times throughout the day. And it's simple. You are simply meditating on the fact that there is no original sin, that there is no consequence. You're meditating on the fact that there is a God who has made you exactly the way you need to be. And there's a God who sees all your imperfections and goes, those are exactly what they need to be. Therefore, their intended purpose. And sees all your beauty and goes, this is exactly what is intended to be. This is the way I made you. It's all tough. And so the thing we take from Paul in this is just a conscious gratitude. A, con a conscious saying, I rejoice in this. I rejoice in the fact that I am made good. I rejoice in the fact that I can look at my reflection in the toaster and even kiss the toaster, and it's all good. I rejoice in the fact that I, I, I see this beech tree and it's broken and it's gross and needs to be chopped down, but it's also the most beautiful tree in the world. It's all good. It's simple, almost too simple. What would it mean if we just stopped saying, hey, I'm not a sinner in need of saving, but I'm a child of God and everything I do is for its intended purpose. Thank you, God. And then we go and we help someone else and they say, why are you helping? We say, because you're a child of God and everything going on is for its intended purpose. And then we get home and we see like the rocks and the dirt that like, uh, you know, are underneath our building that you know, have rats and cockroaches crawling through it. And we go, oh my gosh, this is all a crazy miracle and it's all for its intended purpose. What if we trained ourselves to do that instead? And you guys are like, no, it's not. No, it's not. Maybe I took it a little too far. Stop being good. Instead, rejoice. Rejoice in the fact that you are made imperfectly perfect. That you are not an original sinner, but you are an original blessing to this place. I am an original blessing to this place. We are an original blessing to this place. And the world will look a lot different when we start practicing and we start rejoicing. So I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. And I want to pray for us. God, thank you for giving us this planet that we inhabit. Thank you for telling each and every one of us and all the living beings that we are exactly what you intended. And God, give us the courage to know this, to rejoice in it, and to usher in the next 500 years. God, allow us to just celebrate your original blessing, your shared dignity. And thank you, God, that we are made imperfectly perfect. We give you all glory, all honor, and all praise. Amen.